0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis.
1: Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 159 with Tasha Uric. Tasha's got some surprises in store when it comes to self-awareness. So you're going to learn, one, seven indicators that reveal if you're actually self-aware. Hint, most of us aren't. Two, why you need to be more self-aware. And three, what we're doing wrong when it comes to introspection. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items referenced here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep159. Here is Tasha's story. Dr. Tasha Yurik is an organizational psychologist, researcher, and New York Times bestselling author of the book Bankable Leadership. With a PhD in organizational psychology, she is also the founder of the Urick Group, where she's helped thousands of leaders and teams improve their effectiveness through greater self-awareness. Dr. Urick has contributed to Entrepreneur, CNBC.com, and the Huffington Post, and has been featured in outlets such as Forbes, the New York Times, Fast Company, and Inc. She's been named one of Denver Business Journals 40 under 40 as well as a top 100 thought leader by Trust Across America. In 2015, she was named a leader to watch by the American Management Association. Her TEDx talk has been viewed more than 1 million times. Tasha, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I got a real kick out of your TEDx talk, learning to be awesome at anything you do. I think that you have excellent taste in titling things. (laughs)
0: <laughs> As do you. I'm happy to be here with a like-minded individual.
1: <laughs> oh, certainly. And so I understand you have a background in theater. Can you tell us what's the story there and if there's any sort of interesting intersections between that and what you're up to now?
0: Uh, yeah, I, much to my parents' chagrin, I was a theater major in college and really just loved acting. I did it pretty much my whole life. I did some little bit of professional work in Denver but realized that I wanted to have, you know, health insurance and Uh a steady job and maybe own a house. So I ended up not going into theater, um, but going into psychology. And I never imagined that my path would take me back to sort of a theater related world. But as a keynote speaker, I use so many of the techniques and the tips that I learned, you know, from that world. So things kind of just come together sometimes in really interesting ways.
1: That's excellent. Well, I must ask, is there something in particular from theater that you go back to again and again in your speaking experiences?
0: I think the biggest thing is the use of voice. There was this very intensive acting class that I had to take. And I was at Middlebury College which is where I studied theater. And it just taught us how to use our voice and project and use you know light and shade and I find myself constantly going back to that. So I'm appreciative of all of that really technical guidance to hopefully be awesome as a speaker and to continue trying to be better.
1: Excellent. Well, so now could you tell us what's the big idea in your book, Insight?
0: The big idea is self-awareness is one of the most important and one of the most misunderstood critical skills of success, both in the workplace and in, in life in general. And the reason I wanted to write this book was, first of all, there are so many myths around what it takes to become more self-aware. And then even more importantly, I think most people are not as self-aware as they think they are. So my mission in life right now is to help bring these concepts and tools to people so they can really take charge of their lives and have a clear appreciation of sort of who they see when they look in the mirror and reach the success that they want to achieve at work and in life.
1: All right. Well, so I'm so intrigued then. Let's talk a little about some of the data here. You say that just about everybody thinks that they are self-aware, but in fact, only perhaps a 10th or 15% of folks really are. How are we measuring these things in the first place in terms of the perception and the reality? Yeah,
0: well, that's exactly right. So the perception is just asking people in psychology, we call it self-report. So I say on a scale of one to 10, how self-aware, or I would say, you know, do you think you're self-aware, strongly agree, strongly disagree, you know, all that sort of normal testing and measurement stuff, but measuring self-awareness in actuality ended up being a lot harder than we thought. And the preface to this is I've been an organizational psychologist for about 15 years, but I've spent the last three years of my career deeply diving into this topic. And so it actually took us more than a year to come up with an assessment to measure self-awareness. And, you you know, you go back to that statistic that you gave, I found that 95% of people think they're self-aware. And so what we couldn't do was send out a call and say, hey, are you self-aware? Why don't you participate in our study? Because obviously we are not always the best judges of that. So the assessment is, you know, you contribute your thoughts and then someone else who knows you well contributes their thoughts. And actually a version of that is if your listeners are intrigued to know their level of self-awareness, I can tell you at the end about a place where they can find a shorter version of that assessment to take themselves.
1: Yes, certainly. So then I guess, how does it work? Like one gets the stamp of actually self-aware based upon third parties?
0: Right. That's the tricky part. One of the things I want to make sure I don't imply and, you know, that almost sort of suggests is that we either are self-aware or we aren't. And, you know, we have to cut off scores as researchers and that's how we came up with those statistics. But the most important thing for anybody who might feel stuck in their career or stuck in a relationship or just feeling like they're not really achieving what they want to It's a matter of daily incremental improvements in seeing ourselves clearly. And so I think as soon as we start to put ourselves in boxes, I'm either self-aware or I'm not self-aware. I think we start to miss the bigger picture.
1: I hear you. And so then could you give us just a quick kind of gauge or acid test for this is what we saw or how we know that someone is on the higher end of the continuum or spectrum for self-awareness versus the lower end?
0: So in our research, we found in studying highly self-aware people that they had seven types of insight about themselves. And I'll just sort of name them briefly. One is they knew what they valued, what was important to them. Two was they understood what they were passionate about, what they loved to do and what really got them out of bed in the morning. Three was their aspirations. So that was what did they want to not just achieve in their life, but experience? Why were they kind of there on the planet? The fourth was they understood something called fit, which is knowing the environment that's going to help you be happy and engaged and thrive. The next was something called patterns, which is basically your personality. Are you introverted? Or are you extroverted? Do you tend to be very organized, very disorganized? Then was what we call reactions, which is essentially your strengths and weaknesses, which is a big one. I think we can all agree. And then the last insight was the impact we have on other people. And so the way we measured self-awareness, once we had those seven, I call them the pillars of insight, was we asked people, how clear are you on those things? And then we asked someone who knew them well, how clear do you think they are? And if they sort of passed both tests, and there were a couple of other things, but in general, that was how we deemed someone, you know, yes, you're on the higher end of the spectrum, if you had that type of clarity about those things, and if someone who knew you well tended to agree.
1: Yeah, You know, I'm intrigued. I'm thinking about a friend of mine who once told me that he was jealous of me because I seem so passionate about some areas of work and career and what I'm trying to do and that he didn't know if he would ever find something that uh, he would feel as passionate about. And so in a way that sounded sad to me at the time, but I'm kind of wondering on that particular dimension, do some people just sort of have less total passion or or is it that they're just not yet aware of it?
0: Mm, Yeah, I think probably for most people who are maybe not satisfied with what they're doing, I choose to believe that it's because they haven't found what really gets them going. You know, I do think there might be people who just don't sort of have that same level of excitement about everything. You know, I I tend to consider myself on the high end of I just get so excited. Sometimes it's alarming to people (laughs) Uh and not everybody has to have that level of excitement, although it's great if you do. But I think for most people, it's a process of exploring Again, those sort of daily insights, you know, "Hmm, today I spent time doing a client presentation and I found that that really jazzed me and it gave me more energy than I had before I started. So that might be a clue. Maybe there's a clue that I like to, you know, be in front of clients and building those relationships. That's the kind of insight that in some total, if you're really paying attention, you actually can start to piece together what your passions are.
1: Well, and can you lay out for us, I imagine in your research, you've discovered that some of the tremendous benefits and power associated with having a high level of self-awareness, can you lay it down on us? And the, and the more data-driven, the better.
0: Oh gosh, how long do you have? <laughs> there are so <laughs> many benefits. It's really remarkable. And I kind of went into this process agnostic. You know, I believed that it was important, but I wanted to let the science tell me whether I was right. And indeed, what I found, and this is my work, as well as about uh, 800 or so other empirical studies that my team and I have analyzed over the years, we found that people who know themselves and how other people see them are happier, they're more confident, they're better communicators, they have more stronger and deeper relationships at work and at home, they tend to be more successful in their careers, which might pique some people's interest, they're better leaders, They even raise more mature children for the parents who are listening. And this is the most interesting one to me. And I think it really proves the point of why it's so important. Companies with high numbers and percentages of self-aware employees are actually more profitable. So there's that individual level impact of just a happier, better, more confident life. And there's the impact of prosperity sort of metaphorically and literally. So it's one of those things that I think people instinctively know is important, but they might not have, as I did, a full appreciation of just how important it really is.
1: Intriguing. Okay, so then can you lay it out for us? Where are folks falling short and what could be done?
0: Let me just mention two examples of where some people might have room for improvement. So the first is just a lack of a commitment to seek the truth. And the truth is squirrely, and it's not simply what other people think of us or simply what we think of us, but it's the decision, and I call it deciding to be braver but wiser. So many people live their lives, you know, sort of blissfully ignorant. We decide that it's easier to see ourselves with rose colored glasses and to assume that if nobody's, you know, giving us feedback, that we're just fine. The unfortunate part about that is not only do we not learn the things that might be holding us back. We sometimes don't learn the gifts that we have. I know a lot of people who, in the process of becoming more self-aware, have learned things that they're incredibly good at that they never even knew. So that's the first piece. I think the second part of what makes it so hard for people is that not only are we scared to seek feedback, which is a really critical and important part of being self-aware, but we also live in a world where people don't tell us the truth. There are so many studies that are just remarkable at the lengths other people, even the people close to us, are willing to go to avoid telling us how they see us. And the interesting thing I think is it's not just the negative stuff. There's a lot of research that shows that we're more likely to tell, you know, if I have a friend, Jane, I am more likely to tell other mutual acquaintances of mine and Jane's what I love about her than I am to tell her directly. And so I think those two things together, this internal struggle between, you know, blissful ignorance and the objective truth, as well as this world where if we don't seek it out, it's not going to come to us. It's sort of no wonder that most people have work to do.
1: Certainly, yes. And so then what does that work look like? So if you make that decision, all right, I'm going to be braver and wiser and I'm going to go forth and I'm going to try to do some reflection and get some feedback, what Are some of the particular practices or pro tips for making it happen?
0: Sure. And I'll preface this by saying this is such a rich topic. And and I talk about literally dozens and dozens of tools in the book, but I'll give you one that hopefully is actionable. So even though the way other people see us is not necessarily the be-all, end-all truth, it's really important to get that perception and to check it against theirs. So a tool that I talk about is called the Dinner of truth. And it's sort of intentionally ominous.
1: It really (laughs) does sound.
0: (laughs) And what it is, it was actually developed by a communications professor named Josh Meisner that he uses. He's used with thousands and thousands of his students. And here's what it entails. You find someone in your life, either at work or at home, who is important to you, who you want to improve your relationship with, and you invite them to dinner. And you give them a heads up that at dinner... You want some feedback from them. And specifically what you want to know is what is the thing you do that they find the most annoying? And then your job is to inquisitively and curiously try to examine that perception. I tell people it's always a safe bet to ask questions in those types of conversations. Let's say I go out, I mentioned a fake friend, Jane. So let's say Jane and I go out for the dinner of truth. And she tells me that, you know, maybe my lack of punctuality is the thing that most annoys her. So instead of defending myself, instead of, you know, trying to justify, well, I've got so much going on, It's better if I ask questions, if I say, you know, can you give me an example of a time where that's been an issue or have you seen it get worse over time? Or are there certain situations where I've been more punctual that we can sort of talk about? But the point there is, again, it's not to make ourselves feel bad. By no means is that the case. It's really to strengthen our relationship with that person and know a little bit more about how we can show up in a more productive way. And I'll tell you, I've personally done this exercise three times. And it's never as scary or as negative as I fear it would be. One time I learned something that kind of rocked my world, but it was a positive conversation. And I actually felt afterwards a lot more empowered. So I sort of, you know, it's very fun to name something, the dinner of truth, and make it sound scary. But my hope is that it can be a very kind of low hanging fruit for people if they want to start essentially questioning the assumptions that they have about themselves. Doesn't mean that they're right and others are wrong or vice versa, but I think it's a great place to start.
1: And so within that dinner of truth, it sounds like this is one-on-one.
0: Correct.
1: Yeah, definitely. Not a uh, a roast of truth. Yeah, not a pile of 10 of your closest friends all (laughs) together
0: with alcohol.
1: (laughs) Okay. And so that prompt, I mean, I'd imagine it's pretty flexible. Like you could use any number of prompts as the superlative is cool, the most. There you used most annoying. Is that what you'd recommend starting with or are there a number of prompts to work with?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I recently had a friend ask me, why are you friends with me? which is another dimension of it. And again, we had this conversation that I had never shared those things with her. You think that if you love someone and you appreciate them and you value them, that you would take the time to share that. But sometimes it just doesn't come up. So I think there are a lot of questions you can ask. The other thing I'll say is, it's very common, you know, if your friend or your family member really cares about you for them to ask you the same question. So I always recommend that people be prepared to answer that if they're going
1: (laughs) to ask it. Well, that's funny. It's like, oh, geez, I have no idea. Uh." (laughs) I didn't even think about that. I was just thinking
0: about me. (laughs)
1: Yeah, you're right. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think it does sound like fun because, well, I'm thinking, you mentioned personality. I do do Myers-Briggs workshops and coaching. And so people are indeed fascinated with themselves. And so I just think this sounds like fun. And as I imagine, most people do if they're not too terrified. So in your experience, what's the range of reactions in terms of folks loving this idea versus saying, no way I'm out of here?
0: I'll give you Professor Meisner's data because he's literally done this with thousands and thousands of students. He says the reaction is always the same. He gives them the assignment and their eyes grow wide and they sort of start looking around in, in quiet desperation. And then he gives them some of the tools that I just shared about, you know, here's how to have a good conversation that will be as unscary as possible. And inevitably, they remain kind of scared but because it's a required assignment, they go do it and they come back. And to a person, I think he said he's never heard someone say that it wasn't a positive, valuable experience. So in a lot of ways, it's like a lot of scary things that we do that are good for us. You know, Anytime we take a risk at work or we get a promotion that we don't feel totally ready for, we have the choice to make. Do I want to jump in? Or do I want to let fear hold me back? And I think that the truly courageous people appreciate their fear. You know, there's an FDR quote about this. It's courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the feeling that something is more important than the fear. And I think in that case, this is that insight and that self-awareness.
1: Oh, excellent. Thank you. And so now can you share a little bit, are there some additional tools that can make a world of impact here?
0: Sure. So we talked about the external self-awareness, which is understanding how other people see us. Let's look at a tool for internal self-awareness, which is that inward understanding of who we are and what we value and all of that good stuff. So people inclined towards self-improvement often spend a lot of time introspecting. And a really common way that people do that is, you know, they might go to therapy, they might journal, they might even just ask themselves questions like, why am I like this? Or why did I do that? And something that I was shocked to learn that was very well established in research is that a lot of times that type of thinking where we try to dig deeply into our inner subconscious and find these essential principles or truths about ourselves A lot of that work, not only are we usually wrong about Uh the answers we think we discover, but the process itself can do more harm than good. So for example, when we do that, when we ask ourselves, you know, let's say I have a fight with my husband and I say, gosh, why is this happening? Why can't we have a better relationship? Why have I gone so wrong? That gets me in an unproductive spiral where, and this has been shown, Uh you feel depression, you feel anxiety, you feel hopelessness. And so one really easy way to change that conversation is to go from why questions to what questions. So in that same example, instead of all those why, you know, downward spiral kind of directions I might take, what I might say instead is, what do I want out of this relationship? Or what do I need to do in the future to make sure this doesn't happen? Or what am I going to do the next time the same issue presents itself? And the essential difference there is looking backward versus looking forward. And as counterintuitive as it sounds, the more we look forward and look at goals and actions and sort of don't worry about finding those essential inner truths, the better we understand ourselves.
1: Okay. So if we are looking for some answers associated with those seven areas you laid out there in terms of aspirations and fit and reactions, you're saying... The why questions may not do it so much as the what questions. And so I guess if we're kind of trying to dig into a little bit in terms of the areas of passion, Mm -hmm. for instance, we wouldn't say, why do I love this? Or why do I hate this? But what would be some better questions?
0: So a better question. So let's say somebody feels stuck in their job and they say, I'm in marketing and I don't like my role. Instead of asking, why don't I like it? and getting in that downward spiral of just sort of negativity, what I might say is in the last week, what activities have I liked and what activities have not made me feel as excited? Or what types of jobs in the past have I enjoyed more than what I'm doing now or less than what I'm doing now? And again, it's identifying that concrete example versus trying to delve deeper when delving deeper doesn't always serve us.
1: Understood. All right. And so then I'm wondering, is it possible that as we're digging into some of this stuff, can one become too self-aware or cross the line and turning into (laughs) self-conscious territory? And how should we watch out for that?
0: I'm so glad you asked that question. So there is a difference between lovingly knowing the truth about ourselves and becoming so self-conscious that we, you know, again, it, it puts us in an unproductive place. And oddly, what I found was the people who were the most self aware that we studied in our investigation said things like, Hey, listen, do I like knowing that I'm not perfect? Of course not. Do I know what I'm not perfect at? I do. You know, again, all those seven pillars. Do I know the things that I'm passionate about or my weaknesses or my behavioral patterns? Yes. And so the direction they go with that is instead of judging themselves, It just simply is. And what I would encourage people to do, the more they learn about themselves, to avoid getting into that self-consciousness, is to look at it as a decision point. You know, the feedback from Jane that I'm late, I have a choice to make. I don't have to say I'm a bad person because I'm late. And why am I always so late? I'm going to say, listen, first of all, does this feedback seem important to me right now? Do I feel like I might need to get some more data to see whether it's really a generalized issue for me? Or do I have the energy to work on it? I tell stories of people in my book, actually, who made the decision once they had that knowledge that they were going to accept that. And if nothing else, they were going to be open about their weaknesses with other people. So I think the process of discovering who we are, not only does it have sometimes some really great surprises. And I've personally found that and many others have as well. We learn things that give us power and power to control our decisions and choose our destiny instead of just being sort of a victim passively waiting for things to happen.
1: And when you talk about the power, one thing that I'm thinking about right now is I recall working with someone who, you know, he just seemed anxious a lot, and it made me anxious. And I was like, "Oh, does he think that our work is bad? Is he worried about something that the client is just going to, you know, flip out or whatnot?" And I was a little bit on edge until one day I heard him say, "Well, I'm a bit of an anxious personality. I get that from my mother." I thought I was so relieved. Just. <laughs> okay, nothing's about to fall apart. You know, we're not screwing up. That's just how you are. Okay. Thank you for sharing that.
0: And that was so little, but it made such a big difference. And I think that's a great example of having that insight and sometimes saying, look, you know, I am who I am. I might not be able to change this or I might not want to change this right now. But being open about it with others, like you said, it's a relief sometimes.
1: Oh, it absolutely was. And so then I'm wondering when it comes to others, what's our role or responsibility in terms of aiding others who have a profound lack of self-awareness? I mean, on the one hand, you mentioned we don't give feedback and that's understandable. It's risky. I mean, you kind of put yourself in a potentially compromising situation. Like, who do you think you are? You know, I don't want to hear this from you. This is unwarranted, unwelcome, not asked for. So I think like, I understand why people don't proactively share helpful feedback because, you know, when people, for example, pitch me to be on my podcast, when they say, why? I'm not going to say, well, because you have fake Twitter followers and I don't trust anything that you say. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to do that just because that might be helpful for them. And maybe I'm selfish, but you know, I don't want to unleash their wrath. I'll just be like, oh, it's not quite a good fit, you know, and sort of move on. And so I guess I go back and forth with that because I know how important feedback and candor is and I really do want everyone to learn and grow, but I'm also watching my own interests. So how do we navigate that whole mess?
0: My answer might surprise you. And this is what I learned from our highly self-aware people. The biggest lesson there is that other people's self-awareness journey is not ours to own. All right. And does that mean that you can't smartly and strategically and practically confront someone? No, of course not. But what I tell people is before you do that, you need to consider some other things first. So the first thing is to look at them with compassion and to say we're in different places in our self-awareness journeys and that's yours and this is mine. The second is to realize that you can do a lot to manage your own reactions. And there's so much there and we probably don't have time to go into it, but to say instead of trying to fix this person, what can I do to make it easier to deal with them, especially if it's someone that you have to deal with, you know, frequently like a boss or a coworker. And then the third thing is again if you decide to confront them, you've got to make sure that you're the right person to confront them and also that you are doing it in the right way. And there's so much to that. There's so much depth and detail But I think those are kind of the three things I'd encourage someone to think
1: about. Sure thing. And if someone does ask for our input, what would you say are some of the key principles to offering that well?
0: Oh, man, I wish there was a universal answer that I could give to that question. Here's what I'd offer. Usually it's better for someone to ask us than to offer to give feedback to them. Now, what that means is sometimes we have to be patient and it's also dependent on them knowing that there's a problem. Sometimes people who aren't self-aware, you know, most of the time, in my opinion, they mean well, they're trying to do the best they can. They just don't know that what they're doing is part of the problem. And so I think if we're strategic about it, sometimes there is that opportunity. I tell the story in a book of a board chair for a nonprofit who has a new board member who comes in and is just alienating everyone. And she's sort of watching it and thinking, what should I do? Should I say something? Should I not say something? And she decides not to because she doesn't want to alienate him even more. But lo and behold, you know, a month or two later, he approaches her and says, you know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why these people don't like me, but could I talk to you about it? And so then she was in the position to say, well, I'd be happy to share with you my observations. Would that be okay? Would that be helpful? And so anytime we're in that situation where we can give something to someone that they've requested is a completely different conversation. And I think that goes back to the idea that other people's self-awareness journeys are not ours to own.
1: Oh, excellent. Thank you. Well, tell me, Tasha, is there anything else you want to make sure that we cover prior to hearing about some of your favorite things?
0: Gosh, I feel like we've covered so much ground. Yeah. A lot of the big major topics I think we've covered. So yeah, I'm good.
1: All right, then. Well, now could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
0: Oh, gosh. Well, probably my favorite quote of all time is Goethe, the German poet. He says whatever you do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And that was actually the quote I came across that when I first left the Fortune 500 world about five or six years ago to start my own company. And, you know, without being overly dramatic, it was one of those moments of, yes, that is what I have to do. And I also think there's a parallel to self-awareness. You've got to be bold. You've got to be brave. You've got to be courageous. But in doing that, that's where the magic is.
1: Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research you find yourself thinking about or citing often?
0: (laughs) I'm laughing because I love research probably more than anyone on the planet. So it's impossible to pick. But I think a lot of the research, one area we didn't cover too much today was just how much social media is impacting our levels of narcissism. Oh, And there's a direct and causal link, right? So I'll just briefly tell you the study. So it was two groups of students, the researchers randomly assigned them into two groups. One group they had spend 20 minutes plotting their way to school on Google Maps. So online, but not on social media. Okay. The other group, and this was in the MySpace time, so in the dark ages of social media, (laughs) uh, they had them spend 20 minutes on their MySpace page on their own profile. So they immediately measured both groups' levels of narcissism, and lo and behold, the MAP people, the non-social media people, did not show increases in narcissism, and the NYSPACE group showed significant and immediate increases in their level of narcissism. And I share that because I think we sometimes lose sight of just how much this whole whirlwind is affecting us. Um, And one of the ways we can do that is to think about how much time am I spending thinking about myself and posting about myself online and in real life? And how much am I really focusing on others? And the most self-aware people spent the most time, ironically, focused on
1: other people. Well, yes, I think that is an intriguing study, particularly because I see so much on social media and I wonder, do you really think any of us care about that? It's (laughs) (laughs)
0: self-awareness.
1: Like food, food is what comes to mind the most. I mean, if it's sort of necessary to tweet or share on Facebook your plate, I mean, I need to be blown away by, by what's on that plate to think that was worth sharing.
0: And if someone thinks other people actually will care about that is where it gets really scary. And just how many people seem to feel that way.
1: Right. Okay. And now how about a favorite book? Oh
0: man. Well, I think it's a tie for me. Favorite book would be either The Great Gatsby, Fitzgerald, or The Unbearable Lightness of Being* by Milan Kundera.
1: Thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something you use frequently to be awesome at your job?
0: The what, not why tool for me personally that I shared a little bit ago, I've started using that more even just in the last week or two. And it's blown me away how differently I'm looking at the challenges I'm facing. So for me, I think that's just a very powerful one that is feeling relevant
1: to me right now. All right. And how about a favorite habit or personal practice that helps you flourish?
0: It would be spending time with my five pound rescue poodle named Fred. (laughs) who always relaxes me and makes me smile.
1: Beautiful. And would you say there's a particular nugget or articulation of some of your message or wisdom that really seems to get people nodding their heads, taking notes and connecting with what you're saying?
0: You know, there's so much richness to this topic. It's hard to pick one thing, but what I've seen people really respond to is this idea of self-awareness as personal empowerment and not having it be an exercise in self-loathing, but the opposite, right? Which is lifting ourselves up and giving ourselves more control over our destiny. It really is a positive message. I wouldn't want anyone to end this podcast thinking that it was anything else.
1: Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them to?
0: I would actually, to give them some value, I would point them to a free quiz that I have available as part of the book where they can get their level of self-awareness The one that I mentioned earlier is at www.insight-quiz.com. And there's also a link to find out more about the book there.
1: Okay. And Tasha, is there a final challenge or call to action you'd issue forth to folks looking to be more awesome at their jobs? That
0: one's simple. If you want to be awesome at your job, you have to be self-aware. And are you going to make the choice to be braver but wiser or blissfully ignorant? perfect. Not to make it dramatic or anything, but I feel pretty
1: strongly. Yeah. I don't want to be blissfully ignorant, nor do I want to be blissfully ignorant of your calendar, which is full of interviews today. So Tasha, thanks so much for making this time. It's been a real treat. And I hope that, you know, your book Insight is a smashing success and you're making a big impact here.
0: Thanks so much, Pete. Happy to be here.
1: I loved Tasha's challenging question. Are you going to make the choice to be braver but wiser or blissfully ignorant? Summoning that courage and humility can really accelerate your growth if you're willing to go there to build your self-awareness. So that's so handy. Again, if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items referenced, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep159. And I do hope you'll push subscribe so you won't miss folks like our very next guest. We have got Paul Ciarto. Paul has some wisdom when it comes to the discipline of martial arts and how he's applied that to great effect and making good things happen in a quick career climb. So I hope to catch you then.